0: That idea, how you learn, is more important than the stuff, the what you learn, because the how you learn shapes your intellect, your cognitive function in a way, and your desire to learn more.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois Well, this is the busy season for you. I'm kind of excited that you're actually here in the office today.
0: Yes, it is. And it's been fun to fly around the country and from one side to the other in this state to that and meet so many teachers and homeschooling parents and tutors and hybrid school teachers. And it's really been an exciting year for me just in terms of so much Positive feedback, mm-hmm. so much gratitude, and lots of great questions.
1: Right. And I did hear you say at a webinar last night that you've talked to some people, and they have mentioned to you that they enjoy our podcasts.
0: Yes. <laughs> one one woman said, I've listened to all 101 episodes. Oh, my goodness. I was mightily impressed <laughs> at that. But yes, it it seems that there is a lot more traction. Sometimes we sit here and wonder, you know, is anyone ever going to listen to this? Is anyone listening out there? It's hard to know. So, but, you know, evidently we have some followers.
1: Which is in some ways so gratifying, but in other ways a little bit embarrassing because your, your friend who said she's listened to all 101, that means that she listened to those first couple ones, which... You sounded great. I was <laughs> so nervous.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure that our clientele is forgiving by nature. So. Yes,
1: but I have been thinking that maybe we should redo some of those early ones, just because to go back and listen to all 100 episodes would be quite a task. But if there uh, are there some that we'd want to bring forward to those that are new but listeners, I don't know.
0: Either that or we could do a flash round. We could do 100 episodes in 20 minutes and
1: <laughs> pull sign sound bites from all three, of them. Three-sentence summary of, of the whole shebang. Yeah. Uh, no, I probably not. Well, some of the feedback that we often get when you have just spoken at a convention or they heard from a friend that you spoke at a convention, oh, that one talk, that was so awesome. Can Where, where can I get? a recording of that talk, well, a lot of the talks that you share and a lot of the things that we've had conversations about on our podcast are actually on our audio page on our website.
0: Sure. And we have a lot of that summarized as articles. Yes, we do. on the Downloads tab. So... Yep, we've got a lot available. A lot so of content out
1: there. That's a lot of it's free. So help yourselves to a heaping helping of the free buffet. And
0: if you can't find something like <laughs> me, just contact our customer service department and say, Where is this thing I'm looking for? Where Which is this is thing? Sometimes what I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they know. They know well. So what are we talking about today?
1: Well, the reason I introduce this idea of people looking for a talk, that we can often point them to something that they can purchase on our website. What I'd like to talk about today is not something that is currently available on our website, and that's one of your latest talks that you've developed. It's called?
0: However Imperfectly. That's the one. Lessons from 30 Years of Teaching.
1: It's hard to imagine that you've been teaching for 30
0: years. It really is, especially since I look so young. You look so young. I'm my boyish figure. <laughs> well, I calculated that I really began in 1987. That was when I left the institutes in Philadelphia, moved to Bozeman and started teaching violin, opened the preschool and started doing some tutoring and and kind of started homeschooling. So that all really did happen. Somewhere between 1987 and 1990, and so that, I guess, 30 years, <laughs> approximately.
1: Okay. Well, and now that I think about it, because you and I are about the same age, I started teaching about 30 years ago, right out of college, only I taught junior high, which was really painful, mm. and then I taught for a couple of years teaching first and second grade, which I loved. But... I have not heard this talk, so I'm not exactly sure what questions to ask. Is this ordered chronologically? Is this ordered thematically? So I'm just going to let you share those well, seven ideas. yeah,
0: there were seven things I came up with, and I was very excited as I was writing this talk. It was to be the kind of keynote at a series of, of conventions in Alaska where I've done a lot of work, know a lot of people. And so I wrote out these seven points and then Once I did it, I realized I had about seven hours of content that uh, was going to have to be compressed into one hour. (laughs) Uh, But it worked pretty well and a lot of good feedback. So it's just seven things I've learned. You can keep count if you want to. Okay. I hate to say I'm going to do seven and then accidentally skip one or something. Right. Okay. But the first thing is this. It's hard not to do to our students, to our children what was done to us, mm-hmm. right? We all were formed and shaped by our own education, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. I went to public schools in a suburb of Southern California, a suburb of Los Angeles, and it was very much the experience I brought into adulthood and therefore into teaching. So you know, this is how you teach math or reading right. or history or science, because that's how people attempted to teach you those things. Mm-hmm. And one of the best things that happened to kind of help me see the problem with this was right around 1990, I had got a copy of John Taylor Gatto's book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education. And so uh, one of my violin students' parents gave it to me. And so I read it, and it's a small, easy-to-read little book. And I was so excited because I was reading this book, and I thought, yes, this explains why I am so stupid. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of us hit that around 30 and somewhere in that late 20s, early 30s. We think, I'm an adult. I went to school for a long time and I don't know much at all. I'm profoundly ignorant. How how did this happen? Kind of a thin layer of a lot of different things. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I feel like I got ripped off. Mm. And now I'm getting a glimpse of what education might be. I can see that I didn't get that and I wish I had. Mm -hmm. So I was very excited about this book because it kind of simultaneously explained one of my frustrations and it helped to break that jello mold and say you don't have to do things the way they were done to you. The only problem is Gatto has his way of doing things and he's very good at explaining the problem in the system and he went on a few years later to start work on his great magnum opus, you know, the huge tome, An Underground History of American Education, which is big, thick, painfully delicious, (laughs) and tremendously depressing because by the end of the book you think, well, it's hopeless. Public education, (laughs) the institutional education as we have all experienced, as it exists, is so behemothic, so overwhelming, it really won't change. Until, what, the whole federal government collapses and we fall into a semi-feudal state and redesign ourselves up out of the ashes, and who's really looking forward to that?
1: Speaking as a (laughs) true pessimist. Those words just came out of your mouth so easily,
0: didn't they? Yes, well, you can't speak as a true pessimist.
1: No, I cannot, but I can say that given the right person at the right place, History can indeed
0: change. It, you could. And the, the thing, though, is that you read Gatto, and, you know, he was a public school mm-hmm. teacher in Brooklyn, New York, for right. 16, 17 years. And he knew, as most teachers in the school know, the system is just dysfunctional, it's disordered to its end. But the good teachers stick around, like him, fight the system as best they can. And he was, of course, New York City Teacher of the Year, New York State Teacher of the Year, I believe, twice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that, those two books were tremendously helpful to me because they, they help break that paradigm. We hold it kind of like a jello mold. You know, this is the way we were formed. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there holding it except the fact that it was formed that way or an elephant tethered to the stake. Right. It could easily break free but it's been tethered since it was a baby and so it's programmed to mm-hmm. don't break don't pull don't fight don't don't kick the system so gatto was was very helpful that way and i've always recommended the books mm-hmm. but the one thing he lacked was here's what you can do that's different okay so that really i think that whole period there in the early 90s started me on this question of if you wanted to do something differently what would it be what would it be so but it's it's hard to want to do something differently unless you get that point first sure that if unless you try you will end up raising your kids like your parents raised Mm -hmm. you or educating your students like you were educated Mm -hmm. or creating environments like the environment you grew up in without stopping to think is this the best is this the best way to raise to teach to create
1: right Exactly. Okay, so that's point one. Point one. Lesson one. So what was lesson two?
0: Lesson two. This was a very gradual process of learning, here ironically, that it's really about process over product.
1: Right. We've talked about that on our podcast.
0: We have and you know, when we when we're in school, so much of it is about the product. Mm -hmm. You know, you work so hard to produce the project that gets the grade or pass the test that gets the grade. And the grade is what judges the value of the thing. Right. And that's what goes on the report card, which means you get another dollar from your mom or dad or you don't, or it goes on the transcript, which Mm -hmm. means you may or may not get into a college or a good college or a scholarship. And so we tend to very much, I think, obsess about that, product rather than what's being learned in any given day Mm -hmm. and I think this is you know it's important it's important to keep an eye on the goal as you MBA types (laughs) like to say but it's also important to realize that the learning of the day may be sufficient thereof the work Mm -hmm. of the day may be sufficient to the end that you don't necessarily always know right also, I think that as we push that, you know, grades on the transcript, report cards, it's all in the the judgment of the product, the the earlier we push that, the more dangerous, the more pernicious the effect can possibly be. So I always like to tell people about a particular scene in a particular movie okay. that I think really helps break this paradigm of product. Right. It's good for teachers. It's a little hard for for homeschool moms, but I think you've seen the movie A River Runs Through It. Yes. Yes, it's it's the autobiography of Norman Maclean, the American author made into a movie. It's mostly about fly fishing. I would say it was kind of boring <laughs> although Brad Pitt dies, so but it's mostly about fishing and alcoholism, but there is a really interesting scene in the beginning of the movie, that shows a very young Norman McLean sitting at his table. He's probably, you know, 10 years old would be my guess. And, and he's writing a composition of some sort, you know, on a piece of paper. And, and he brings it into his father's study. His father's a very taciturn Presbyterian minister, basically homeschooling these two kids in the early 1900s, out in a very rural area of Montana.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful area.
0: Beautiful, yes. I will give it that on the two months out of the year that it isn't winter. <laughs> Nevertheless, he's, he's writing this paper. He brings it into to his father, slides it across the desk, and his father marks on it a little bit, slides it back and says, again, half as long. So he goes back to his little table and he writes this thing again and he brings it in to his father and he's not talking to his father and he just slides it across the desk and his father marks on it a little bit slides it back and says again shorter so he goes back to his little desk and he writes it a third time which which for many people you know having a boy write a composition a third time I'd be like yeah some of the teachers
1: and parents that are listening are saying I couldn't get my kid to write one (laughs) paper let alone three times Well, to,
0: to rewrite the same paper oh this is true anyway so he slides it across the desk to his father and his father reads it and he slides it back to his son and says, good, now throw it away. And mm. the child grabs the piece of paper, mm. crumples it up into a ball, tosses it into the trash can for two points, grabs his fishing pole, runs out the front door, and his mom yells, Norman, wait for your brother. Now, a lot of times I'll, I'll describe this little scene, or I've actually got a little talk lessons from cinema, and I've showed this scene. And sometimes, you know, particularly moms, you say now throw it away. They're horrified. Throw it away. He rewrote wrote it three times, you know. Throw it away. Right.
1: Oh, my goodness. Painful. So
0: what we would have to look at a little more objectively, right, is this writing from this 10-year-old child is actually worthless. I mean, objectively. Nobody's going to read it and say, well, that was great. I want to read that again or whatever. The, the father was teaching an extraordinarily important lesson to the boy, which is the product right now is not the goal. The growth for the day, the lesson you learn today, mm-hmm. that is what really matters. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to pretend that this thing you wrote is something that it isn't. And I always say, you know, homeschool moms get a little horrified. Like, well, couldn't we just put it in a portfolio to sure. prove that we did something? <laughs> <Right>. you <know? laughs> but you're going to throw it away eventually, so why not now?
1: Well, and when I think about school back in the day, they didn't have a lot of paper. I'm thinking of the one-room schoolhouse with the little slate sure, board and sure. the stone. They were erasing everything. They didn't keep anything.
0: Yeah, that's really true. So I, I do like this scene in this movie from a— Lesson of pedagogy, pedagogical lesson, because I think if we if we put more value on the learning experience for the day and a little less on what we can prove that happened or that we got in Mm -hmm. terms of number of pages or compositions or fill in the blanks done or all that, then we'd order things Mm -hmm. more properly. And that's true in the classroom as well.
1: Absolutely. And when I think about one of the things that occurred to me, when I taught school, this is going to shock you. We didn't always finish that whole book. (laughs) And we didn't continue school just to finish the book. And I know as a homeschooling mom, I had no problem just being done when it was time to be done. But some of my friends would continue to prolong the agony just so they could finish that book and I'm just saying right now homeschool mom your school teacher counterparts don't always finish the book so you have permission to end early Uh, does that process versus product probably
0: yeah I think it falls in that category because it it kind of fits with the next point I learned under this heading of process versus product which is how you learn something really seems to be more important than what you learn Because the how you learn, especially as a child, kind of shapes and forms your intellect. Now, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood that the content doesn't have importance or value. Mm, And I'm very much aware that there's that, Hirsch's idea of cultural literacy, there's certain things that as Americans, you know, and descending from Western civilization, there are common things we should all learn. However, I think that the way in which we learn has more impact because we will remember things better if we learn them better. Mm-hmm. Right? So yes. you can learn a whole lot of things and then forget them. Yes. So if you flash back to when you were in school and you had a big, you know, 300 page textbook and you slogged through this thing and you took quizzes and passed tests and then the end of the year came. And if it wasn't relevant in some way, if, if you didn't really care or have an interest or do some kind of project that really brought it to life, how much of that do you remember three, four months later? Well,
1: yeah, very, yeah, very little. little. Yeah,
0: I mean, it goes away awfully quickly. So it seems as though that textbook approach tends to help people kind of be a mile wide and a quarter inch deep and mm-hmm. learn a little bit about almost everything. Mm-hmm. But then summer hits, it gets hot, especially here, you know, in Oklahoma, <laughs> and evaporation occurs, and people forget so much of what was in that book. However, what I've noticed is if you can go deeper and learn a lot more about fewer things, or I don't even know if it's more, but just a more in-depth experience, which would include, I would say, not just reading, but writing and talking about it, presenting, teaching, acting. I'm not the paper mache kind of guy, <laughs> but I know that those kinds of hands-on projects, mm-hmm. those really do help lock ideas mm-hmm. in the memory, for better or worse. I mean, everybody knows that volcanoes erupt because baking soda <laughs> you know, mixes with vinegar in the middle of the earth. But, uh, but that whole idea of how you learn, so history, for example, you can learn a bunch of facts, and you can hammer it in with repetition. You can pass quizzes or use flashcards. But it's the stories that stick in the mind. Mm-hmm. So if you read and talk about Johnny Tremaine, you probably take more out of that long term about the period there, American War for Independence, and that part of the world and the people that were characters in that story, the, you know, the real people who were mentioned in the story, the fictional story. You remember more from reading that book than you would from spending an equivalent amount of time on the you know on a list of facts. Right. So I think that value of historical fiction is is one illustration of that. Relevance, relevancy, I have that whole talk on motivation. You mm-hmm. can refer people to that is the key. And that as much as possible we want to encourage students to pursue their interests and be as self-directed as possible now i'm not talking about the you know the child-centered classroom or whatever kind mm-hmm. of 70s innovation i'm talking more about that phase where you know kids are getting a little older they're starting to develop specific interests and you have the ability to give them the freedom to pursue those with their skills they've developed on the basis of the knowledge they have, and then that learning becomes very real and Mm -hmm. lasting. And I think we can all look back into our teenage years and say, what did we really learn? Well, it was connected with what we were really interested in. Exactly. and, And that's kind of universal. So that was one thing that Gatto used to do, is try to give kids as much freedom within the very constrained system of an eighth grade English class in Brooklyn, New York, to, to explore, to pursue, to have meaningful experiences. So that idea, how you learn, is probably more important than the stuff, the what you learn, because the how you learn shapes your intellect, your cognitive function in a way, and your desire to learn more.
1: Right. And I think about, of course, our writing system. I think of Dr. Webster's initiation to a lot of students in how to write happened at the university level in his West African history course. Mm -hmm. And a lot of students found great value in writing, learning to write while studying history, and that made it more relevant.
0: Sure. And, you know, I think we've seen a lot of kids who use, say, our history-based writing lesson books, theme-based the the little articles and subjects that mm-hmm. they write about they know that mm-hmm. you know you can read something and forget it but if you write a whole little report or do a little research or an essay and you write it all out and wrestle with that and maybe rewrite it again whoo that's like you know reading on on exponential steroids there
1: right and that that little essay that you wrote now May stick with you a lot longer. Even becomes a part of your soul and who you are. Yeah, <laughs> right.
0: In a way, it certainly can. So, so that 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 idea.
1: Yeah. So, do we have time for one more?
0: Well, there's actually two more points under process over product. Oh my
1: goodness. Okay. Well, we better so, get moving. Then. Yeah.
0: I mean, I have all these sub points. Here. Okay. Okay. But this this is not a huge point, but I think it's very important. And mm-hmm. for me, it was tremendously valuable. It was something I had a suspicion of, but I wasn't confirmed in it until I read the quote by G.K. Chesterton, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. <laughs> I think the word badly maybe would work a little better if we substituted imperfectly. Mm-hmm. Anything worth doing is worth trying to do, knowing that you're not going to do it perfectly. Because if we have this kind of fear that we're not going to do it perfectly We might give up, and we might not try it, and then how much goodness would be lost. Mm. You know, because you've watched me do this for seven years, I started teaching Latin, knowing very, very little Latin, uh, with 23 kids, ages 10 to 17, you know, twice a week. And I was just staying three steps ahead of them, if that, having to work twice as hard to memorize the vocabulary and paradigms and, and gain enough speed that I didn't look like an idiot. Certainly, I was not a s- excellent Latin teacher in the beginning, and probably not now. But but when I look back over that time, I think, well, that was totally worth it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, some of the kids got great value. Some of them got so excited about Latin, they've gone off to study Latin in college or, or become Latin teachers. It's, it enriched me. And so I think it's very okay for us as teachers and teaching parents to realize we don't have to be an expert. In fact, there are very few experts in anything. And anyone who claims to be an expert, you're almost suspicious mm-hmm, you know,
1: about mm-hmm. that. Like um, what do you not know in order to become an expert in what you do know?
0: Yes, yes. And one thing about learning along with your students is it demonstrates to them mm-hmm. that It's okay to not know everything. It's okay to keep learning. You're all in this together. Your job is to, you know, maybe be the guide by being two or three steps ahead. But you don't have to have the answer to every question. You know, and the kids are always saying, well, how would you say this in Latin? Or what about that? Hey, you know what? I did not know. But I'll go try to find out and let (laughs) you know next time. Right. And so that, I've experienced that in many ways. And so a lot of times people are a little hesitant about teaching writing. Mm. You know, maybe they had a bad experience in school. They, they never really remembered how they learned what they learned. So they're not sure how to teach it. And so they have that hesitance. And they even they can sit through our seminar and still be a little hesitant. Mm-hmm. And I say, all you got to do is just start, mm-hmm. you know, just turn on that video and just start mm-hmm. and learn. And then just you have to watch the student class, go imitate me mm-hmm. and just Start doing it. Trust the system. Mm-hmm. The system will carry you, even if you don't really know what you're doing. Right. You know. So it's imperfect, mm. but however imperfectly. And the last one, just squeeze it in here if we if we have time, is to quote another quote. I I love quotes. This is my good friend Andrew Kern, and one day he was at my house and we were talking about poetry and he was talking about his little daughter who could recite this poem and she had no idea what it meant but it was a beautiful poem and he said well understanding is highly overrated (laughs) and that's so true because a lot of the things that are of great value are also very difficult Mm -hmm. to understand Mm -hmm. so you've watched me teach through to the kids you know in the office Homer you know Iliad the Odyssey I'm I'm on the second cycle now through Virgil and teaching the Aeneid, and I'm going to Dante again. I mm. don't understand these <laughs> books. I don't understand Shakespeare. There's a whole lot of things I don't understand, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth doing. The understanding itself is highly overrated. In fact, if I did understand it perfectly, well, where would be the where would be the opportunity for exploration and discovery? Right. Although it always brings to mind this particular quote by Mark Twain about the Bible. Okay. He said, it isn't the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that are perfectly clear that cause me concern. Right, exactly. (laughs) So I have taken that to heart and realized I live in this world of some very intelligent and intellectual people who understand a whole lot more about a whole lot more things than I do. And I could say, well, I'm never going to be like them. But then they probably, because they're basically humble people as well, realize that they don't understand everything about everything anyway. So that's probably something perhaps we can look forward to in eternity Mm -hmm. is understanding everything but it's not necessarily given to us now and we wouldn't want to prevent ourselves from say reading a beautiful poem or reading a Shakespeare play with kids or reading a classic and saying you know I don't know that I understand everything there is about this but let's let's learn together.
1: So it's like layers at first you're just understanding perhaps the surface meaning but as you read it again and again. It's that definition of classics. Yeah, definitely. And even
0: if you don't understand the surface layer, it, it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds
1: beautiful. <laughs> well, I just got the sign. Okay, from so our timekeeper. W- those
0: are just two of my seven oh, points. Okay. So I guess we have to continue on in another episode. I think so. All right, well, Until good. Until then.